Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. Preet is on vacation this week, so today I'm joined by a special guest co-host, Dan Goldman. Dan, as many listeners may know, served as House Majority Counsel during the first impeachment of Donald Trump. He also served under Preet as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. And as usual, we have plenty of news to discuss. Reports indicate that Manhattan DA Cy Vance is close to bringing criminal charges against the Trump Organization, maybe even as soon as this week. Meanwhile, Rudy Giuliani is back in the news. A New York appellate court suspended his law license for lying about election fraud on behalf of Trump. And a Minnesota judge sentenced Derek Chauvin to 22 and a half years in prison for murdering George Floyd. Dan Goldman and I discuss all this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. And for a limited time, use the code JOYCE for 50% off the annual membership price. We look forward to having you as a part of the Insider community. We had a lot of listener questions about reporting that people from Trump Organization and, and Trump's own lawyers were meeting with prosecutors in a last-ditch effort to keep the, the organization from being indicted. And many people were concerned that that smacked of favoritism. But, you know, in my experience, and especially in a white-collar case, you often meet with the defendant's lawyers right when you're in the, the run-up to indicting. For one thing, in criminal cases, unlike in civil cases, there's not this robust discovery where the defendant is required to turn over all sorts of information to prosecutors. And so often as a prosecutor, your best glimpse into the defense that a defendant is going to mount comes at this last stage where they're trying to convince you not to indict them. And it's also just a good reality check to make sure that you haven't missed anything in the evidence, that you're not making a mistake and that your indictment really is, is good to proceed. So I think that these sorts of meetings are, are normal, that there's no sort of favoritism being done here. Do you make anything of that? I don't make anything of the meeting. That is standard routine, usual practice when you're considering indicting a company. You want them to be able to make their case not just against the charges themselves, but one of the considerations are the collateral consequences against the company. So you have to give the company an opportunity to be heard and to say, if you indict me, this is going to happen. And that's going to mean we thousand people lose their jobs. So we would like to avoid indictment. The other thing that that meeting does is it usually initiates settlement discussions. And it may be a situation where they wanted to notify that we are preparing to indict. You can make a case why you shouldn't be indicted, but maybe you want to settle this in some fashion short of an indictment, perhaps because you want to save the company. And so that is standard operating practice in any case that's considering charging a corporation. The other thing to consider, and this is, I think, really important here, and I do think it's very important for the Manhattan DA's office, and particularly in conjunction with the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, who I personally think went a little awry when she campaigned about taking on Donald Trump, 
and trying to investigate him, I think you really need to play this by the book. And by the book means there should be precedent for doing what you're doing in other cases. And one of the considerations has to be about indicting a corporation is whether this is pervasive and persistent conduct, whether this is not just a one-off thing, but whether this has been going on for years and effectively the whole corporation is corrupt. So my hope is that if the company is indicted, there's a lot more than we're hearing. We will have to wait and see. But I really do hope that this is by the book and that there's more to it than these these fringe benefits. I really agree with you here. Anything that smacks as um, targeting Trump, particularly in light of the comments that Tish James made when she was campaigning, is going to be problematic. You and I have talked on numerous occasions about how important it is for prosecutors to, to maintain their credibility so that the public can have confidence in how the criminal justice system works. Otherwise, it, it really does give some power to inevitably Trump's arguments that this is just a witch hunt, even though it wouldn't be, even though it would be a technically proper indictment based on, on you know, those sorts of allegations of, of tax failures, prosecutors really need to go above and beyond here to maintain their, their credibility. Well, not only that, I would, I would jump in there because for those who are very concerned about what the four years under Donald Trump did to the rule of law, you cannot now turn around and use some of those same improper tactics and an erosion of the rule of law against him and feel okay about it. In order to restore the rule of law, we need to uphold it and maintain it, even if it's politically inconvenient for some. There's a strong tendency to want to get him by a lot of people. And I understand that, but we cannot stoop to the level that he did in order to get him for political reasons. This feels like a very important point to me because I know there are so many people who, from a, a place of emotion, understandable emotion, I've been there myself, want to see there be some accountability for all of Donald Trump's misconduct. But the reality is it's like when you're playing a card game. You can't be so focused on winning one hand in the card game that you're willing to break all of the rules and blow up the whole game, right? We are a rule of law country, and that means that we are committed to a lot of principles, including due process of law. We don't just lock people up because we don't like them or because we think that they've done something wrong. And we have this very high burden in our criminal justice system of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. My inclination, my belief is that this is likely it. And that based on reports that Alan Weisselberg's attorneys have also been talking to the DA's office, that he knows what he is going to be charged with, if anything. And he has made the decision that he's going to either fight the charges or just plead guilty, but that he's not going to cooperate. And I think that's why they've gone to consider charges against the corporation. There's really no incentive by charging the corporation to get anyone to cooperate. The incentive would be to avoid jail time. That's obviously not going to happen with the corporation. It feels to me like indicting the corporation is kind of the last step that you would take in an investigation. You focus on the individuals as much as you can. You see where it can go. 
But then if in the end you you can't get any further in terms of individuals. And by the way, there may be more individuals than Alan Weisselberg down the line. Maybe his son, there have been rumors that he may be charged as well. He also worked there. But it feels to me like this is it. Whatever happens this week is it, unless Alan Weisselberg decides to cooperate, which I, I don't think he will, or something like that. What do you think? You know, Alan Weisselberg feels like one of those defendants who has a choice to make, right? As prosecutors in my office used to like to say, he can either be on the bus or he can be under it. He can either cooperate with the prosecution or he can run the risk of trial and being convicted. And it looks to me like he's made a decision that he can do whatever time he might get if he's convicted. Two years, three years, maybe he thinks that he can beat the charges against him and and do no time at all. And look, Cy Vance, who has been in this game for a long time, knows how to bring pressure on on a witness. That's probably why there's been investigation into Weisselberg's son. Most people won't let one of their kids go to prison when push comes to shove and will make the decision to cooperate. But Weisselberg has worked for Trump for a long time. He's got a high tolerance to risk. And unless prosecutors have found an alternative path into Trump's mind, maybe if Michael Cohen has something, but they've been talking to him for a long time, that's all been pretty public. It feels to me like this is it. I will say the special grand jury remains in session through the end of the year. So certainly there's that possibility of additional activity, but this has a little bit of a sense of finality to it. Yeah. And you you raise a good point that with family members, that's often a, a strong incentive to cooperate. But I sort of, I have two responses to, to what you just said. The first is related to Michael Cohen, who I spent a fair amount of time with when I was with the House Intelligence Committee in, in meeting with him and then deposing him. Michael Cohen is not enough to get to Donald Trump. He was not the numbers guy. He has some information that's very public about the insurance applications and the valuation, the different valuations of the same property, whether it was to insurance companies or tax authorities, inflating the value to insurance companies. So the insurance you get is more. But Michael Cohen doesn't know the details, and he's simply not enough to get to Donald Trump. And that's putting aside some of the credibility concerns and some of the concerns you would have for him being your star witness, given how much he's been out there in public. That's never a good thing for a witness. But the other thing I would just add, and and I think this is very important to think about, in white-collar cases, the New York state law, which the Manhattan DA's office implements, has broadly speaking, very light penalties, particularly in comparison to federal law. And so one of the considerations, I'm sure, that is going through Alan Weisselberg's head is the charges that may be coming against him are going to carry very light penalties. It's entirely possible, Joyce, that he could plead guilty and get a sentence of less than a year based on this conduct. And so that is not a good incentive the New York version of RICO, of racketeering, which I think the Trump organization and Donald Trump would be ripe for on a federal level, the New York law is much more restrictive and it's much harder to prove. 
of RICO charge under New York law. So Cy Vance is somewhat handcuffed here by the laws that he has to work with, which he, of course, he does not have a choice about. Well, last question, Dan, since you raise it. Your old office, the Southern District of New York, once identified Donald Trump as individual number one in a prosecution where Michael Cohen was convicted. As you say, federal law on RICO is has much more broader provisions than New York's little RICO statute has. And frankly, federal law, when it comes to criminal asset forfeiture, taking assets away from someone who's engaged in misconduct, is much broader than New York's very limited, rarely used sort of asset forfeiture provisions for this sort of situation. Do you think that we'll see the Southern District of New York get into this whole mess? I don't. I think that investigation is over. I don't quite know why. I think in some respects, it's too bad. I I certainly believe as a former prosecutor that there was enough evidence to charge Donald Trump for the hush money payments for campaign finance fraud. You not only had Michael Cohen, you had David Pecker, the head of the National Enquirer, the parent company who apparently cooperated with the Southern District, who could testify that he was asked to pay McDougal the money to catch and kill her story. And then you have that recording that I mentioned earlier between Michael Cohen and Donald Trump, which is really powerful evidence. And then you have the cover-up, which is also excellent evidence. So to me, if you're going to charge a campaign finance violation, a campaign election fraud charge based on campaign finance fraud, that would have been the case. But they closed that investigation, and I don't know why. I'd be curious whether Bill Barr and the higher-ups at DOJ had anything to do with that. I had heard rumors that Bill Barr did not like the theory of that case, even putting aside politics. And then the other problem I think that the Southern District had is there was reporting that Alan Weisselberg, they brought Alan Weisselberg into the grand jury. Now, that creates... It's too complicated for for us right now, but that creates a lot of problems to prosecute someone who has already testified in the grand jury because you can't use that information against them. In some cases, you can't use that information against them, but that creates a lot of problems. So I don't know why the Southern District walked away from it, but they did. And I do not expect there to be any federal charges for the Trump organization or any conduct related to that. There are other investigations that may involve federal charges against Donald Trump, but not for this conduct. I agree with you that there are so many unanswered questions there. And in part, we're now bumping up against the statute of limitations, right? Typically for most federal crimes, the statute of limitations is five years. Of course, if there's a conspiracy, that statute runs from the last act of the conspiracy. If there's an ongoing cover-up, you might get a couple of uh, extra years on that statutory period. But I think this is one of those mysteries of the Trump era that will have to be untangled down the road. I look forward to your book, Dan. Well, my book will definitely include uh, our next topic, Joyce, Rudy Giuliani, who has completely disgraced himself and the former office where I worked, where many decades ago he was the U.S. attorney. And the big news last week is that his law license was temporarily suspended on an interim emergency basis because of the lies that he told to just about everybody in every tribunal who would listen to him 
related to the big lie. And in the last fall and winter where he was preaching all of these bogus allegations. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. And for a limited time, use the code Joyce for 50% off the annual membership price. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.